Welcome to the Magazine Debrief uh, for the 26th of February edition. I'm John Severs and I'm joined as usual by Gwanya Hallahan and Dan Worth. Hi guys. Hi there. Good morning. Uh, before we start, I just need to give a shout out to my friend Pete, who has corrected me on the podcast last week. Uh, I said I didn't do a spelling test. Pete has told me we did do spelling tests, so I, I stand corrected. But on the podcast before that, when we talked about lifting someone up with our fingers, he definitely confirms that is true. So let us begin. Okay, so before we get started on the magazine, we wanted to do at least acknowledge the fact that this has been a huge week of education news. Uh, the 8th of March return has been confirmed, uh, return to full face-to-face teaching, not return to open schools, because as we know, schools have been open throughout. Um, Dan, you did a quick piece yesterday, you ran through the guidance mm. and and picked out some key things that are going to be different when teachers return. Yes, that's right. And there was there was a the long guidance from the DfE, um, and, and they sort of quite helpfully actually sort of outlined at the start though we, that the majority of it is the same or broadly the same as what schools had already been working with in the autumn term. But they outlined there were six main areas, um, and the, the main one, obviously, that everyone will be aware of, is that it's now going to be a requirement for staff and teachers to wear masks in the classroom, which is a big change. Um, and it's currently going to be for the for the three weeks that schools are back, um, and then they'll consider after that what they do. They say it's just sort of an interim measure while they just to make sure it's like an extra layer of protection. But obviously, it's going to cause presumably some things to think about, issues maybe, and behaviour, enforcement, and also communication in the classroom, and what happens if a pupil says they haven't got a mask, and how do you provide them with, with one? We're going to be looking into some of that, some upcoming features, because this actually, some schools have been doing this anyway, and international schools have been in some countries, so there's plenty of people out there who can offer some help on that. Um, and there are also changes like, things like, you know, it's now mandatory, like, like usual, for pupils to be in school, and, you know, exemptions around unless your shielding are still there, but other things such as, you know, if a family is concerned about the risk, ultimately that's not a valid reason to not send the pupil in. So yeah, there's there's some, uh, and the other key thing, sorry, to mention is the, is the sort of curri- curriculum expectations, which are sort of, you know, broadly in line, I suspect with what most teachers would imagine what they would be doing in normal school uh, under normal conditions. But again, it's just, I think it's making that point that they are expecting normality as much as it can be as we can imagine in this period in a lesson so it's not going to be going back but just sort of like you know kicking around the edges it, it's back and ideally you're teaching what you would usually teach um and i think the guidance sort of acknowledges that that's not entirely realistic there are some sort of little caveats here and there like you should aim to do this or you know it, it is ideally hoped you will achieve something worse to that effect but there's definitely an expectation that you know their schools are back all pupils are back unless you know medically exempt and teaching is for the most part as normal so yeah it's definitely worth having to read the piece i wrote the six key guidance changes sort of outlines that in as sort of clearer detail as possible the masks the the, the, the children wearing masks in the classroom is interesting wasn't it because you know 15 16 14 15 16 year olds even you know it's, it's it, you can sort of imagine it but these little years year sevens well i guess they're not so little anymore uh, they're uh, they're, they're, they've grown up across the year but that distinction that year six year seven distinction is always the one that gets you isn't it because you know one minute they're a primary child innocent and shouldn't be exposed to anything and then suddenly they're thrust into this adult world of secondary school and i think that would be an interesting one that you know these children might be the most anxious in in that school and then the the, the wearing of the mask is going to be an interesting pastoral uh conundrum i would guess i was really pleased to notice in the guidance that they made a real point about saying that 
um, the, you've got to think about communication, the, it, it, the recommendation of the clear masks and talking about the importance of making sure that if you've got children in your class who have hearing impairments, that you need to be mindful of that and think about what you can wear as a mask to ensure that you're not excluding them or, or making life unnecessarily difficult for them. I think that's a, it's important that we're talking about that and we're making sure that we're not making making children who find the classroom environment already a challenge for for different reasons even more challenging unnecessarily. So the guidance does acknowledge that as well. There are ex exclude exemptions from wearing masks for certain pupils, and it says, like you say, clear masks. It sort of says they may not be as effective, but they are acceptable and they're better than nothing. So if you want to wear a clear mask so you can see people's mouths and so forth, then you can. Which I, I think you're right is a, is a good sort of allowance i did hear an unusual tricky uh, tricky um side effect of using the the visors that some teachers are finding that wearing the visor means that you can't write on the board properly so it ruins your vision <laughs> <laughs> like it warps here and i know my so did you start writing in a circle like in, a, in an arch <laughs> my hairdresser getting... said the same thing to me she can't cut hair with the visor on because it it means that when you're trying to look at something really precise it's really difficult mm. so you're just going to get bowl cuts is that what you're talking? <laughs> Next time we see you, you're going to have like a, literally like a bowl on your head type cut. Oh, it's like nice I cut, cut my hair. Um, so yes, yeah, so the, the, the idea about wearing the visors is an option. We know, we know that on the one hand, visors aren't that as effective as masks, but also you've got the issue of writing on the board or doing really intricate stuff or even like writing or I suppose for art teachers and tech teachers and people who work in the different, different sections might find I think, that, that tricky. I think a visor is is a little bit more intimidating than the mask. I don't know how you feel about it. Do you? It. Yeah. Have I, you seen the video of the, the guy at the boxing match trying to drink with his visor on? And I haven't seen missing. that. It just reminds me a bit of Riot Police, and I know that's really bad. But... Yeah. I, when I see someone in a mask in the visor, it looks more proper. I think I feel like all those people are properly concerned for whatever reason. But they're not yeah. as effective, are they? The visors, because well, you... Yeah. yeah, they say that they... Because it sort of... Stick and the droplets just dropped well, out. So if I'm, this is the video, and my, if this is a podcast. I'm, my gestures I'm doing aren't making much sense, but every when you've week got a visor, is the same. Every just, week is the same. You're a very visual person, um, but I think as well, like with Helen Amas, who's the commissioning editor at Tes, put out a piece yesterday from an expert who's saying that actually a lot of the that a lot of the the reasoning behind masks isn't necessarily to block transmission because if you want to black block transmission, you you need PPE basically. It reduces it, but it doesn't block it. What, what a big thing is, is to stop you touching your face and it stops you putting your contaminated fingers in, in your mouth or nose or, or hopefully eyes, um, although the mask obviously doesn't go out over your eyes unless it's a visor. But I thought that was quite an interesting one where if we explain this to the kids and say, yes, you may have heard it doesn't block transmission completely, but actually, you know, it does reduce it and it's to stop you touching your face all the time and spreading your germs to others and other germs into your mouth. I think maybe you'll get more compliance from from the kids but you know if i think back to when i was at school there, there are going to be incidences of you know twanging mask straps and and the like and i guess that's just kids and it is dangerous and you do need to take that seriously but it's going to be a tricky pastoral problem i think um anyway so there check out dan's article check out helen's article and and check out all the stuff we've got on on the website um this week which should hopefully give you all the guidance you need ready for the 8th of march okay let's get to the magazine so we have as the cover feature this week a piece by jared cooney horvath who i've said it before the guy is an amazing communicator and 
you know, every time you get an email from Jared in your email box, it's exciting because he's come up with some other amazing idea and he explains it so well. Um, Dan, you, 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 you tackled this one this week. I did, yes. And we'll, we'll shortly listen to the interview I did with him about this. And like, as you say, his, the article he's written alongside a colleague called David Bott is about um, kind of fundamentally like why grading is, is wrong or has had its day. We need to move on from this. And that's an idea that the moment you hear it, I think we've all heard this, that sort of said in passing, and we sort of think, well, yeah, rubbish, you can never do it. But he really breaks down the kind of fundamentals of why we do it in the first place. Like, why are we obsessed with grading? Why do we as humans feel the need to rank things? And he talks about this with interesting concepts such as beauty, like, you know, what is Brad Pitt more attractive than Ryan Gosling? And we would create a measure to do that, but it would still be meaningless because the measure itself is kind of inherently flawed. And who's more sophisticated? Uh, a small girl or an old man and it's like well if you use a measure of who's traveled to the most countries and the girl's been to more countries is she therefore more sophisticated well of course not but you've you've got to create a system and he kind of says exams have the same problem and that we've sort of but we believe in them but if you if we just trace it back it's like well they're meaningless because it's uh, with grades because they're all sort of a, a created thing against a sort of impossible metric now again the article really breaks this down in more detail really outlines it in a really really structured way and i think that's why it's such a good article and talking to him as well as we'll hear now um, it's a really interesting concept and I think um, one that now more than ever people are more willing to sort of really engage with yeah how do we move our assessment ideas forward hi Jared thank you welcome to the uh, debrief podcast great to chat with you and thank you for having me on this should be fun yeah no it definitely will be and um, you've written the cover feature for this week's Tez an absolutely fascinating sort of deep dive into why we should essentially do away with grades um, and obviously you take, you know, there's a, there's a real detailed explanation of that that really brings in sort of um, the science of grading and sort of a philosophical sort of element as well. And um, I think it would be interesting just, you know, there'll be people who listen to this who immediately think it's impossible. We can't do away with grades. But you make quite a structured argument to say, well, actually, maybe we can. Do you want to try and give us a sort of real good pressy of, of that argument? Yeah. So it's it, if we take a look at grades just kind of as a, as a whole, the question that most people ask about grades is is very obscure. And I, again, I won't go too deeply into it because it's it's in the article. Mm. But most of us say, "How can we use grades better? How can I how can I do give a better grade, a more accurate grade?" When the thing you have to be asking is, "What worldview are grades espousing? What mm. do grades tell kids about the world? How it's structured? How it's structured? How it functions?" And that's the message that we've got to think. What are we passing along to our students? Now, believe it or not, there is a very clear worldview inherent in grades. We'll go through that in the in the in the article. Mm. But when we come out the other side, exactly as you said, as people go, well, we need grades. And at the end of the day, no, you don't. The, I think the biggest thing to remember is there is no inherent value in a grade or a mark or a score. Mm. If the purpose, the function of school is learning, then a grade does not advance learning in any way, shape, or form. Knowing that I have an A or a B or a C doesn't tell me what I got right, what I got wrong, where to go next, who, what I know, what I don't know, who do I talk to. There is no inherent value in it. The way I always describe it is, I don't know if you guys have these in the UK, but down here we still have those uh, uh, stop signs where, or excuse me, the speed limit signs mm. where when you go by it, it flashes your speed at you. Yeah. It says you 25 miles an hour zone, you are going 40, slow down. That's good feedback because inherent in this feedback is personal data. You're supposed to be doing 25. You're actually going 40 and a little bit of push in the right direction. Now slow down. That's personal feedback. That's helping me improve my learning. 
If I drove by that thing, it said going 25, 25 miles per hour speed limit, and I drove by it and it said C+. Plus. <laughs> well, cool. There's no inherent information in there. I don't know if I'm going too fast, too slow. You're just comparing me to other people. I'm going to continue doing what I do. Mm. So the question isn't, do we stop assessment? We've got to, at some level, assess learning. That's how we move on to the next level. The question is, at what level, at what point, do grades become meaningful in this discussion? And so far as we can tell, if they're not helping the learning, there's no need for them. Hmm. Unless you want to do nothing but rank students, a grade, that's its only real purpose, is to rank students on a scale. Why do we rank students so that universities can pick out the best ones and jobs can pick out the best from those that align with their values? Cool. But if you don't think our job should be to rank kids for universities, then why do we continue to use a grading tool that does serves that own that's the only purpose it serves is mm. to rank kids for universities um so if we say and i'm sorry to keep rambling but i just a lot of ideas start to pop up in my brain here so a lot of people say well then how will you, <laughs> if we got rid of grades let's say we just had schooling that was predicated on learning and an exit exam was was kind of just like a ged the past you didn't like think about university when you graduate from university, you either have a degree or you don't. There's mm. not a single person in the world who asked what grade you got in that degree. It was, a, it was a binary system. Yes, you were ready to graduate or no, you weren't. Let's say we ran high school the same way. Yes, you've got your GED, you're ready, ready to graduate or you don't. People say, well, then how will universities know what to pick up? That's their dime. That's their time. Why as a K-12 through educator should I care mm. what a university oh, no, I've put more pressure on a, on a system that has nothing to do with me. And in the U.S. for a long while now, they've stopped using grades in a lot of systems. Mm. And what happened is universities adapt really quickly. And they started saying, okay, rather than a transcript or an SAT or an ACT score, um, you have to write two essays and you have to give us a portfolio and you have to give us a mission statement. They adapt. So if we're if the real worry is how are universities going to sort through kids, which is a very weird worry, don't worry, they can handle it. We can come up with a new system of that, which is probably far better and far more equitable than the, oh, you have an ATAR of 99, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's a lot there, and I you know, certainly not rambling. I think it's such a complex topic. And you know that the trouble is with this is that sort of a, a quick sentence can people listening and people talking about this idea or immediately go, oh, it's impossible, you know, rubbish rubbish but the more you talk about it, the more you start to think well actually and, and like to your point there where you hear about well that's a university's problem why should a high school mm -hmm. teacher secondary school teacher fundamentally worry about well how will a university system it's like let them take care of that and what you do in the article this is and with your we should mention your colleague david bott as well as a co-author of this piece yeah you you sort of break down this thing of like why is it that humans feel this need to grade and you pick a very good example of almost like well we could grade beauty because that's kind of what we feel like we must do that. But but why? Like why do we need to say, oh, Brad Pitt is more objectively better looking than Ryan Gosling? Like, isn't it in the eye of the beholder? Isn't it in circumstances? Isn't it in context? Isn't it all this good stuff? And but like you say, we're kind of obsessed as a as a species to rank and, and order things. And it always makes you think about fifteen years ago in the UK, Channel Four, one of the main broadcasters here, got into this regular thing of every sort of three months there was a great big the best one hundred something list show you know yeah. musicals adverts uh sporting moments all these things and it got to this point like how can you object to say the number four is better than number seven which is better than number 21 <laughs> but like we had to do it and that's kind of what you're getting at here isn't it? it's like we have this compulsion to rank and we've taken that into education and maybe now for the first time we're stopping and going hmm maybe we don't need to do this 
maybe this isn't the best. It's a fun. It's a fun activity when it's harmless. Mm. Human being, we, we we've always ranked, and so the key to ranking is what we call reification. Mm. Is first you have to reify something, and so it's one thing to rank speeds who's the fastest who's the slowest that's an objective measure it's one thing to rate height who's the tallest who's the shortest cool once you start getting into non-material kind of ethereal concepts Mm. things like beauty things like uh funniest show Mm. that we've ever had or most shocking moment on tv history we all know intuitively that these are subjective measures there is no objective measure of beauty there is no it changes culture to culture, day by day, moment by moment. There is no objective measure of um, of laughiness, of funniness. But in order to rank something, you have to make it seem objective. So we go through this process called mm. reification, where we define something that's ethereal as a concrete noun. And once we've done that, now we have a sensation of objectification. So go back to what you were talking about with beauty. Beauty isn't a thing. It is a, is a concept that changes day by day, moment by moment, world by world. But it is a thing when we come out and say, okay, beauty is how symmetrical a human being's face is. And now that we have a reified system, now we can measure it and rank it. We can say Brad Pitt is more beautiful than Ryan Gosling because his face is more symmetrical. Now we've got our compulsion for ranking and we've covered it up with this sensation of objectivity. Mm. But most people recognize in this instance that no, it was all subjective. We started with a subjective definition. We ended with a subject. It's all silliness. Mm. But for the most part, it doesn't matter. We're just having fun. We don't. So we, most people see that when we talk about beauty, when we talk about uh, uh, funniness on TV or shocking moments, most people fail to see that when we talk about intelligence or creativity or critical thinking or collaborative skills. These are ethereal concepts. These aren't nouns. These aren't biological features in human beings. In order to measure intelligence, what we do is we reify it first. We give it a definition. And then whoever performs best on that definition, congratulations, is considered the most intelligent. You go off into the future. Mm. If you see it as being really silly in beauty, then you have to recognize how silly it is when we use that same exact system to rank kids according to what we call academic skills. Mm. There's no inherent reason why we need to a priori define any of these things and then rank kids along a, perspe- uh, a spectrum to say, okay, the highest 1%, you can go here, the next 2%, when it all started as a subjective measure. Hmm. So how do we start to come back? And, and it starts with recognizing that we don't need a rank. There is no inherent reason why schools need to rank students. When you, when you ask the question, what would we be ranking students for? If the answer to that question is <laughs> trash, doesn't fulfill you as a human being then you can drop the measure and the Mm. only thing again we say people what are we ranking kids for for unis well who cares in that case we don't need to be ranking them in that case let's pull it back how else can we assess learning or understanding or passion or development without a priori defining it and just giving it a standard mark on this one test or an Mm. a or b you're doing better than this kid specifically i don't know what you're doing but you're doing better than this kid what does any of this even mean? Hmm. So it's just, it opens up the door to start thinking, okay, if school is for learning, how do we drive personal development and growth? How yeah. do we drive learning? That's the ultimate question. Yes, well, no doubt we could we could talk about this for a lot longer because it, it's such an interesting topic. But uh, of course, time is against us. 
But the article, of course, delves into a lot more detail on this, a lot of things we've talked about and a lot more. So it's really worth checking out. And I'm sure for a lot of our listeners, a lot of teachers, it will probably really articulate and set out a lot of what they've thought about grading and exams in a very sort of structured and science-backed way. So it's definitely worth checking out. And I think everyone listening, you know, if you do read that feature, let us know your thoughts on the usual social channels and so forth. But um, otherwise, Jared, thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you. That was fascinating stuff from Jared. Um, before we move on to the next feature, should we just discuss that a little bit? I mean, can you imagine teaching Gronya without giving a grade? Do you know what I can? I was going to, I was going to instinctively, I was like, no, that would be really weird. But do you know, I think back to when I first trained to be a teacher and at that point you're not as comfortable talking about grades because you don't have that confidence as to what a, like a, a C feels like or what a B feels like because after a while when you've marked so many papers and you've done so much moderation and team marking you get an idea about what grade is what and then once you know that that's quite a comfortable place to be and you, you throw it around a lot like you, you, because you become really uh, confident in your own ability to grade something but in that time before you can grade that was it took me a few years before I felt comfortable with assigning grades and and things to pieces of work and um I think you just you 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 focus more in on what they need to do to improve because you could you know that that you can work out but you don't you don't talk about grades so much because you don't know them and I think those teachers are still an effective teacher then and pe people who are at the beginning of their career who don't have that sort of confidence with assigning grades to things are still excellent teachers so maybe it is possible maybe if we if we yeah i think i think you can i can imagine it i like the idea that he put forward of um yeah when he as you say dan your initial reaction is come on this isn't <laughs> going to work and then you read it and you think well actually all he's really talking about is it's a bit like uh the anders ericsson stuff and, and you know it's about the right assessment at the right time and it's about okay it's about improving an individual and do you need an external benchmark of grades to do that for the for the own child's learning, you need it for the measurement aspect. As you said, you know, businesses all keep saying to schools, oh, you know, you're not teaching soft skills yet, saying we need free mm. A levels and 10 GCSEs. And, you know, there's this, there's this tension there. But to improve a child, do you need to grade them? Do you need to benchmark them against others? Or do you need to just improve their individual performance? And it's sort of a, it's part philosophical, I guess, that, that, that debate. But I think where Jared takes it is into that domain of, okay, how do you improve an individual? And do you need the wider comparison? Okay, so have a read of that one. That is uh, the cover feature this Friday's, in this Friday's magazine, the 26th of February. Okay, next we're going to move on to the focus on this week. Um, this feature came about because over the summer I was reading a book called Range by David Epstein, uh, who's appeared on the Podagogy podcast actually, and it's a fascinating look at you know how we become expert and how the human mind can develop as a learning machine, if you like. And and there's a there's about there's a chapter in there that looks at uh, analogies and and talks to uh, Professor Gentner, who is one of the leading people in, in the world at analogical thinking and, and analysing what that means for learning. And so I just thought, wow, what a fascinating topic. Let's get, uh, let's get her interviewed. And let's have a look at actually what this means in the classroom. So uh, John Morgan had a chat with her and, and what he sort of lays out in the piece is that analogical thinking is how we separate ourselves from other animals. So 
various animals have an amazing sense of space and an amazing memory recall but what we can do is connect disconnected things with the use of analogies so the the most um common one i guess is is, a, is the solar system and you, you use a sort of a model of the solar system to explain the model of an atom and because the solar system is relatively easy to understand comparatively <laughs> The, 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 the model of the atom becomes more more visible. And that 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 comparison of one thing to another is is something that as journalists I think we are naturally drawn to because we are we should be natural communicators and that and that use of analogy is really good at communicating complex things to readers. And it never really struck me how far analogies were used in school to teach me in a similar way to communicate complex things so that you know you could understand them and i think with this piece it's it just shows one how creative you need to be as a teacher and two how you need a really deep knowledge of your subject to be able to draw the right comparisons and potentially avoid some some really negative uh, analogies that just end up confusing kids um so it's a really interesting piece for that, and I won't say any more because I think you need to really understand it by reading it and, and and listening to what Professor Gentner has to say. But if I throw it open to you two, I mean, what what's your initial reaction to sort of analogies? Are you a fan? Do you think they're confused? Do you think it's very hard to get them right? Well, I, I, I've never really thought about if I'm a fan of analogies before. Um, but one thing I do find about analogies is I don't like them, though, when sometimes people use them to try and compare situations and it and this is more like in the world of work or politics or things and it's almost like you, that isn't the same thing you're comparing things as a sort of oh it's it's, it's akin to this and it's like you, but we're not talking about that we're talking about this and i can't think of an, of an example now i wish i had one pre-prepared as a sort of example of that where people sort of they move the what you're talking about to something else and then as if that's it's like yeah, but we're talking about this and this an analogy doesn't really work because in that analogy it's like the context is different but as a Jonathan, learning um, tool Jonathan Van Tan, didn't he? The deputy uh, chief medical officer used the train analogy, and it was sort of split the the nation. Some people, wow, ridiculous! It's not like waiting for a train, the train in the distance, and you know, as as, as a vaccine analogy. And some people just love that. So oh, I get it now. I understand it. So maybe there's um, personal preference involved here as well. It's all about shared knowledge, isn't it? Like if and the shared experiences. When you're thinking of analogies to use in the class. Like it's useless using ones with children about, say, make, drawing an analogy with driving a car because they've never driven a car. And, and I've, I've, yeah, that's a mistake that I made. Um, <laughs> and I was trying to explain about learning like a new skill. It's like, you know, it's like when you go abroad and you drive a left hand, uh, a car with the, it's on the other side of the, uh, the other side of the road. And you just look at a sea of like blank faces, like you've got no idea what I'm talking about. Like everything's something <laughs> different. And yeah, that's, and that's why a good they, example. I mean, it's like, it doesn't hold up always, does it? It doesn't hold up and you've got to really think about it. And that's why when you think of a good analogy, you're like, yes, I'm going to use this again. I'm using this with all my classes because this makes perfect sense. And um, it's, it's really tricky. But when you get a good one, it's wonderful. I, I went to a really great talk at a research ed with Andy Tharby, who was talking about analogies, his book about explaining things. And it was really interesting to think about how the analogies that we use, we've got to be so careful we're not excluding students by drawing on knowledge that they they won't have they won't be privy to and we've got to be mindful of like all the students in your class and it's really interesting to think about what actually goes into a good analogy you have to know your students really well don't you and and you have to be as i said before creative and i think they come more naturally to some people than others i mean as an editor you you read 
you read you read a lot of um of of words and articles each day and and some people are very good at taking a complex topic and finding a relatable analogy and some aren't i mean we just talked about jared the guy is is superb at saying here's something incredibly complex here's something i know you understand brian pitt and ryan gosling this is what i mean and you're there going oh yeah i get that this it's a common enough theme but sometimes you get people who really can't do that and you wonder why that is um and i don't think sometimes it's too little knowledge i think sometimes it's too much knowledge <laughs> it almost it's like this is obvious you know mm. why isn't it obvious to you because they've forgotten what it like it's like to be to be a novice learner yeah. And I think in the piece as well, it talks about, yeah, you know, you can explain some things to an 11 year old, but, you know, a five year old doesn't have that language. So how are you going to build an analogy that a five year old can understand? Uh, what language are you going to use? And you know what? Sometimes the analogies you use in class take you off on like the wrong road. So, for example, when you teach fractions, it's really common to use pizzas because pizzas and cutting a pizza up into slices is something that we do all have a shared experience of and children can quickly grasp but where it can go wrong is when you bring a pizza into the class to try and teach the kids how to understand fractions with a pizza in front of them because then mm. it's a distraction that's when the analogy goes bad <laughs> the analogy when the analogy goes bad <laughs> that's that's a horror film waiting to be made a really sort of teacher geeky horror film. very niche that'd be a niche film <laughs> A very niche film. We'll ask Will Pitt, our video editor, to mock something up, perhaps. Um, so take a look at that that feature. And do read um, David Epstein's book, Range, because I think it's a fascinating counterpoint to a lot of the uh, nar- main, the mainstream narrative around education at the moment. And, and it's backed up with a ton of research. So it's not like it's um, something that's been thrown together. It's a welcome challenge, I think. It's been out for a few years now, but if you haven't read it, have a read. Okay, so from creative and analogical thinking to just pure creativity, or we're trying to teach it, is that right, Gronya? That's right, pure creativity. So is creativity a concrete thing, or is it something that exists somewhere like in your soul, like, that dances about in your imagination, you can't pin it down into a formula or a set of steps that you need to follow? According to headmaster Stephen Burley and acting deputy head Philip Seal from King's High in Warwick, creativity is absolutely something that we can teach children and it's particularly important that we do mostly because being creative is a highly desirable skill and schools should think about how they're doing it because also PISA are going to start measuring it for the first time in 2022 so it's important because it matters and it's important because it's going to matter to other people. Um, Stephen and Philip haven't gone into this half-heartedly though and they've done this Q&A for the pedagogy section in the magazine and they delve into the details behind their certificate in creativity, a qualification they're looking at having properly accredited. So students at King's High get 20 hours of dedicated time teaching creativity over an academic year and in this time they drill down into the really concrete parts of creativity to move away from this we're going to pluck ideas just out of the thin air and that some children think that being creative means and really think about the creative process and moving into strategies that students can use when they're tasked with a problem that requires creativity to solve it. So what does that look like? In the piece it's got some really good suggestions and I'm going to go through one to give you a little flavour. So one of the things I teach them is that you use X to solve Y and it's obviously a bit more complicated than that. So that means that when you've got a problem that you need to solve, 
for example, um, you need to create a, a, a new restaurant, then a way to approach it is I'm going to use greenhouse architecture to create a well-being restaurant set in an indoor garden. So instead of having to start from scratch and just sort of think and invent something from your head, you get them to think about things that they're already familiar with or can become familiar with in order to approach a creative problem. So read it. It's really interesting. I think I want the certificate. Can I do it as part of my CPD? You like it because it, it, it conforms to your preset idea of creativity, right? It's all about using prior knowledge to, to, to create new things. Do you know what? I think I really like it because it's saying that schools should be a place where we talk about creativity and it's okay to be creative. And I think that the creative subjects like drama and art and even the texts like food tech, textiles, which you have so much opportunity to be really creative. They've had their times taken away from them. This focus on the e-back means that they're not valued as much in schools anymore. So any time we're actually saying, yeah, be creative, we're going to give you these lovely tasks we're going to think about how to solve them we're going to let you think and problem solve on your own i think that's great i think um creativity and i'll put critical thinking into this as well discussions get sort of watered down to this being this well you know creativity and critical thinking it just it's just about knowing stuff you know it's just you know if you don't know stuff then then you can't be critical about it and if you don't know stuff you can't be creative with it and i'm i'm always very suspicious of that because creativity and critical thinking aren't just about prior knowledge they're about being brave enough to have an idea and to for, you know to run with something it's about lateral thinking and saying okay that seems the obvious answer but how many other answers are there here and that that counts for both creativity and critical thinking and i just think if you put a jumble of like junk in front of a group of kids and said, make something that moves. Will a prior knowledge of the mechanics of a moving vehicle make, and so, if one kid has that and one kid doesn't, will the kid that doesn't be any less creative with that task? And I, 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 my view on that is that they wouldn't be less creative. Whether they'd be less successful is something different, mm. but whether they'd be less creative this- is, is different, I think. But what's interesting here is all the things we've talked about are a form of problem solving. And that mm. the thing you create has to have a purpose at the end of it. Whereas sometimes with creativity, it's, it has no purpose. It's just the thing itself. Or you look at a piece of art and it's like a beautiful piece of art. It's like, but did it need to exist? Did we need to have it on that wall there? No, we didn't. But we like looking at it. Why is that? Well, I don't know. It's like the soul of being a human, isn't it? And that's the interesting thing here, isn't it? To your point there, John, is that there's so much sort of muddying of the waters around creativity. And, oh, do we need to teach it? And, oh, it doesn't achieve anything but it's like being creative is almost like having those eureka moments and i i do think everyone can have them it just depends on what you sort of your confidence to be creative your confidence to say you've got an idea that might be rubbish and also what you go on to do like some jobs do require more creative thinking but i i think you're right that put a bunch of stuff in front of children and say build something with this they'll all be able to do it you don't teach them that i think we're inherently we like to make things just because we want to make them and it's better if you've got a guide, but like we can all write a thousand words on something with a clear brief. Say we write a thousand words on anything you want, where to start? You know, someone says write a thousand words about, you know, the guidance, the DFEs issued, bang, you, off you go, you've got a brief, you've got a, a structure. Mm. And that's where I guess the line comes, isn't it? Between let people be creative, great, but then eventually you do need to put parameters in to help them turn that creative thinking into something that can have an end product that's kind of useful, whether it's artistically, like good painting, good art, or good music, whatever that is, or business outcome 
My friend did a PhD in that, like in the idea that if you make, um, if you put more constraints onto the creative process, do mm. you end up being more creative? Yeah. And all those the, the the when you write poetry, that's got to have a, like a set number of syllables per line, or have got all got to begin with the same letter, mm. and how sometimes when you restrict it, yeah, it means that you think more deeply about it and come up with something more creative. It's, it's, it's like it's like Top Gear. Top Gear was good with Jeremy Clarkson because they were constricted, shall we say, by the BBC, and they had to, and the budget. They had a, obviously had a big budget, but it was constricted. The moment they went to Amazon, were given free reign, say what you want, do what you want. I watched it and I just thought, ah, this is rubbish. There was no because there was no tension. There was no like creative pushing against the edges yeah. of the creative or, or what they were allowed to do. They were just given free reign, and it just it just became it felt like self indulgent and, and sort of boring. Do you think that's why sometimes combinations of writers are so successful together? Like who writes um, like TV shows, like mm. screenwriters? And yeah, then, like Ricky Gervais and Stephen. Merchant. And then when they do things separately, it's never quite as good mm. because although they're both excellent writers, it's the combination of the two and the friction that that creates that produces great, yeah. great pieces. I just thought so. Like us, right? Yeah. This podcast is much better as the three of us pushing against each other's creative boundaries. Um, I think it's worth connecting this to the critical thinking debate as well because there's been a lot recently because of the pandemic around um, fake news and, you know, especially around vaccines, actually. Uh, and, I, you know, I've heard them... I've heard the vaccine sort of myths being being parroted back to me by people I'd least expect it. And mm. there's this notion, well, if you just tell them more, then then they'll be more critical with it. But Christian Bukov wrote as a really good column uh, about a year ago. I'll dig it out, actually, for this podcast, where he says, you know, debunking that stuff's not easy because actually the more you push against it with knowledge, the more the, more the conspiracy for the person receiving mm. it grows. And actually you know at that point more knowledge is being more more destructive than it than than helpful and it's a really difficult one to unpick so a bit like creativity where people say oh you know more knowledge is obviously better in critical thinking it's not it's it's actually sometimes it's a, it's a, it's the whiff of something that's not quite right and it's an inbuilt process of mm. okay here's some information what what do I do? How do I verify this? And that is something separate to knowledge. It's, it's sort of how you get more knowledge. You know, here's some information. How can I increase my knowledge about this piece? How, you know, what do I do next? Rather than having big prior knowledge to necessarily spot that because it's, well, you know, impossible. It, yeah, you're right, isn't it? Because if you learn everything there is to learn about a creative topic, playing an instrument or whatever, if you learn all the scales and all the rules and all you'd end up potentially becoming unable then to think creatively because you'd be so constrained by this. I can't do that. I'm not, that's the rules. Whereas some of the best musicians are people who were sort of, they sort of taught themselves and they actually break all the rules, but they do it in a, it's like it works because they just do something. And the, so the more you learn is a good thing, but eventually you can reach a point, I suppose, like thing where you suddenly can't, you can't see anything else. And if you're sort of convinced of something, more information is like, no, because that doesn't fit with what I have information. And so I can't comprehend that. So I'm just going to shut down and go, nope, this is the way it is. And, that's not very creative, is it? Creative is thinking critically because you're able to go, oh, I can think this and I can think that and then I can sort of merge them together and come up with a new way of thinking. And I think we also have the issue of how students self-label. So those that think of themselves as being not creative mm. or being as creative and and you get into the issues when you've got like group work and there will be children in the group who think of themselves as not being the ones who are creative. So they then leave the tasks over to the other creative. And it's it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? Mm. If you think, I can't think of creative thoughts, so then I'm not going to try and think of anything creative and I'm going to avoid trying to do any creative tasks and think, 
then you just you, you're limiting yourself, aren't you? Mm. I think that's the thing, isn't it? So I think this is good a good piece because, as you say, it, it t- attempts to put some structure around creativity and 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 the danger is if we go in full circle here, you know, when you try and rank something like Jared says, it 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 can distort. But there's there's a sweet spot in there, and I, and let's hope that school has hit it. Okay, before we go, I think we need to talk about Catatonia. <gasps> it was so yes. good. It was such a good podcast. I love it. Oh, thank what, you. What are we talking about, Dan? Karis Matthews, last My Best Teacher podcast guest. Live now. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon Podcasts. You just search My Best Teacher. It should come up. And the latest issue, issue episode with Karis Matthews, um, lead singer of Catatonia, of course, BBC Six Music host, cookbook writer children's book writer documentary presenter and obviously just one of the nicest most beguiling voices in the world of podcasts radio whatever you want to call it um so yeah wonderful listen uh, great interview and i uh, really recommend listening to that if you haven't and all the others i mean obviously they're all good tim vine hilarious yeah and... we um we so i listened to the catatonia one on my run and then we listened to tim my, my husband and i listened to tim vine as we did a had to go on a drive this weekend and it was oh. perfect. It is. I think that the My Best Teacher is such a good running podcast because it's it just lets you like think about mm. something completely different for thirty or forty minutes. I think it's. Oh, great. that's good to know. Well, there you go. Yeah, definitely get that on the run. And I've got another next one come up. Is also excellent. Um, another rock star, shall we say, and um, with some great stories and one of the best punishments. Well, not best, but one of the weirdest punishments from a teacher you've ever heard. And I'm not going to say what it is. I'll, we'll, we'll tease it a bit more next week. But definitely, honestly, for that story alone, it's worth downloading and listening to. I think it's another one as well, which is going to take us down a bit of memory lane. Like us of a certain age, mm. Catatonia. I mean that that that's drunken nights out that yeah. is that is experiences as a as a late teen i mean i think that era it, you know early kings of leon catatonia yeah. uh block party you know it's my indie heyday um although at well that yeah time... like the next one like you say yeah totally straight indie nights and nightclubs this, this next band um yeah some great choruses i mean yeah good stuff coming up Grania's sort of looking at us both because she was an emo kid. She was, <laughs> she was yeah, somewhere. I was thinking I associate Catatonia with um, Miss Selfridge and that song being on. I spent a lot of my time in shops when I was a teenager. Ah, uh, right. And, yeah. yeah. I just thought, was there some sort of sponsorship deal? It doesn't seem like an easy fit between them. That, that's, but, that's but my, no. I've got a really vivid memory of Catatonia playing in Miss Selfridge and looking at all the, the mm. nail varnish. Well, there we go. If you were, when when was Catonia? Circa two thousand ish. No, I think it was, was earlier. earlier. I, I think earlier. it was like mid nineties, ninety five, ninety six. Was it? Jesus, I'm old. Uh, That's what I was thinking. Why were you drinking? You probably shouldn't like... have been drinking. John's but... older than us, though. So I'm only thirty seven. Oh, maybe you were yeah. drinking. <laughs> Misspent. People you. tell me, Pete. Well, uh, my my friend who listens regularly, you can you can in your debrief this week, your debrief of the debrief, Pete. You can tell me how wrong I am on Catatonia <laughs> and what exactly we were doing when Catatonia was playing, and I'll update everyone next. You were week. probably catatonic. Hey. Hey. For more jokes like that, see the uh, Tim Vine <laughs> podcast. <yes. laughs> Definitely. Okay, well that's it from us this week, but uh, we'll be back uh, next week uh, with more debrief and maybe more school news, depends on how the next two weeks go.
If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.